This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 1 through 5, excuse me. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills. All nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in God's paths. For out of Zion shall go instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn any more war. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Amen. Poet Jared Anderson wrote, We seldom admit the seductive comfort of hopelessness. It saves us from ambiguity. It has an answer for every question. There's just no point. Hope, on the other hand, is messy. If it might all work out, then we have things to do. I'm going to read that one more time. We seldom admit the seductive comfort of hopelessness. It saves us from ambiguity. It has an answer for every question. There's just no point. Hope, on the other hand, is messy. If it might all work out, then we have things to do. I think there's more truth in this quote than we would often like to admit to ourselves. Hope is defiant. And it is work. Hopelessness is safe, and it requires very little of us. This vision of Isaiah's, this vision of the hope or of the future of God's people, is brimming with hope. It is a vision of shalom, of true shalom, that kind of all-encompassing peace. Many speculate that these verses were once a common poem. We can find them here in the book of Isaiah and again in the book of Micah. Their origins are, are not important here, but their place in this book of Isaiah is important. If you haven't read the book of Isaiah, the first chapter, it, it's a doozy. It's full of condemnation and judgment against God's people. God tells them um, that their, 
rebellion will be met with consequences. Inequity and corruption have bred hate and violence. God assures them that they will be held accountable. But God is merciful and God is faithful. So God reminds us here in this second chapter of Isaiah of promises made long ago, promises of flourishing, of abundance. God reminds the people of Judah that they are still God's chosen people, that through them, all people, all creation, will be reconciled back into right relationship with God. Shalom will prevail. And there's a certainty in this vision. I don't know if you caught it. The passage is only 155 words. But 10 of those words are the word shall. This will happen. It's not a question of if, but when. And that when is unclear and truthfully, it's mostly unimportant. Because the point here is hope. Hope that despite Judah's currently reality of aggression, of war, of destruction, of God's impending justice, peace will have the last word for them and for us. Nations will someday unite in seeking out the ways of God, ways of goodness, of mercy, of justice, of selflessness, ways of shalom. Tools once used for violence against one another will be transformed into tools used for cultivating the earth, returning to our first calling to be keepers of the earth, cultivators of shalom. And neither shall they learn war anymore. It's an awkward sentence. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But it's, it's a sentence with big implications. Violence is not innate. It's learned. And Isaiah not only envisions a future in which learning of violence will be a thing of the past, but God, or Isaiah promises that it will be so with those ten shells. This is a future in which traffic stops don't lead to brutal deaths. It's a future in which curriculums no longer include lessons on hiding from active shooters. in which a night of dancing no longer ends in a list of victims, and Black Friday shopping no longer ends in a list of victims, and worship services no longer end in a list of victims, and just going to school no longer ends in a list of victims. A friend, <clears throat> recently shared, not in a positive way, I'll add, a video of a pastor celebrating, celebrating the recent shooting in Colorado. I won't go into details of his disgusting words. They are 
not worth our attention and they're not worth our energy. But it'll suffice to say I needed a moment to regulate my emotions after watching that video. A moment to hug my son and pray for him and this world that he's going to grow up in. So yes, sometimes it's hard to be hopeful when the headlines suggest that hate is winning. It's hard to imagine that anything could disrupt these patterns of violence. Because this, this is our current reality. People using the sacred words of scripture to fuel their hate crimes, their hate-filled tweets, their hate-fueled anger at anyone who might be an other. The pull to hopelessness is appealing. The pull toward, what's the point? What can I do? Swords into plowshares? Spears into pruning hooks? Hopelessness asks, how? And hopelessness wonders what exactly we are going to beat the roughly 390 million American-owned guns into, or military tanks, or nuclear bombs. How could these ever be anything except weapons? But hope? Hope asks, what can I do? Hope asks what walking in the light of divine love looks like. And we don't stop there. We don't offer thoughts and prayers in the light of the Lord. We put our thoughts and prayers into action and we walk in the light of the Lord. In 2014, police forces in the UK were overwhelmed with the amount of knife and sharp weapon crime. With an increasing number of people um, carrying knives and meeting everyday disputes with violence, the trend was trickling down to the youth who were learning that aggression is not only a normal, but an anticipated and expected response to their problems with others. In an attempt to combat this problem, the uh, police forces built um, knife banks. They were paying for these knife banks out of their own budgets. These, of course, needed to somehow be both anonymous, um, or you risk scaring away anyone willing to surrender their knives, and they needed to be secure to ensure that the knives weren't just going to end up back on the streets. So this was a solution, albeit a um, expensive and thus imperfect one. And as if straight from this book that we love, the solution, the solution came from an angel. Literally, a 27 foot, 3.5 ton angel made out of 100,000 knives. The knife angel. Seeing both the problem and their potential capacity to help, the British Iron Works Center 
a metal safari park and sculpture park with over 100 sculptures on display as well as a cafe. See, they boast about being the UK's largest metal safari park and sculpture park. And then I wonder, are there just, are these everywhere in the UK? Is it, do they have some robust competition here? These sculptures, I digress. I, it, it brought up a lot of questions. Um, the, the British Ironworks Center, they recognized that one of the major hurdles in reducing knife crime was these expensive knife banks. And so they donated over 200 of them, 200 of these knife banks to the cause. And then the call went out across the UK for citizens to deposit their sharp weapons. And the response was staggering. I already mentioned that the knife angel is made out of 100,000 knives. But they actually collected 250,000. That's a quarter of a million. Take, take a moment to just take that in. That's 250,000 knives and other sharp weapons that were removed from the streets of the UK. Some of these were just intended to be used for violence, and others actually have been. They arrived in evidence bags still stained with blood. They received everything from your basic kitchen knives and, and pocket knives to samurai swords and even homemade sharp weapons. And for over two years, sculptor Elfie Bradley sterilized and blunted each knife and welded them together into the knife angel. He was thoughtful and meticulous in this work. The hands of the angel sit palms up and the face is looking down at them with a pained expression, as if asking, why? The wings, the wings, just magnificent to see in person, become heart-wrenching when you learn that they are filled with messages of those <clears throat> who have lost someone to knife crime. These <clears throat> are messages of love, messages of loss, messages of just disbelief. And alongside those messages are messages from ex-offenders, messages of regret, of shame. The Knife Angel is dubbed a monument against violence and aggression. These days it travels the UK offering a striking visual of just how serious this problem of knife violence has become. It seeks to educate children, teens, and adults alike about the harmful effects that violent behavior has on communities. The Knife Angel brings awareness. It's a call for social change, and it serves as a memorial for victims of knife crime. Unsurprisingly, the knife angels often use as a modern example of Isaiah's vision. Swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, knives into angels. These tools, tools once used only for aggression and for violence, will be transformed into tools used for growth and for flourishing. And surely, this will only be possible through God, through the coming of the light into the world, that we may follow that light 
into new ways of peace and nonviolence. But we notice that it isn't God who is beating the swords and the spears. They shall. They, us, you, me, we, shall be our weapons into gardening tools. Our weapons of privilege, of silence, of complacency, of cynicism, of doubt, of hopelessness, these will be destroyed and turned into weapons of, or into tools of shalom turned into lifting the voices of those who are marginalized and shutting our mouths in order to listen, turned into action, speaking out against violence, voting and marching and boycotting, turned into hope. And we will use these tools to cultivate community, to ensure the right to flourish is guaranteed to all of God's beloveds. To make space for each person to grow into their true and authentic selves, knowing that they are made in God's image. Now, we, we may never see the day when all nations will stream to the mountain of God when people will beat their weapons into tools because they have never learned violence and aggression. But being able to acknowledge our present reality of violence, of greed, of complacency, while still envisioning a future that looks vastly different from our reality, this is having hope. And when we have hope, we allow ourselves to be open to possibility possibility that a hundred thousand knives can become a symbol of nonviolence. Possibility that we can work for shalom now, in the midst of this chaos. This is the work of hope. It is messy. It is daunting. It is overwhelming and sometimes discouraging. It is doing and knowing that in our doing, we are working to bring about even a sliver of Isaiah's vision now. So come, friends. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.